As you can read from the so from the screen, we are children uh, ages nursery all the way up into sec into going into second grade or going into third grade probably by now um, are released to children's church, and uh, I will judge by the fact I don't see any children that they have already gone on to do that. Um, for the rest of us, it is time to get into the Word, and uh, we are starting something new today, starting a new uh, book of the Bible. We're going to go through a new series, and we're going to be diving into the book of James. So turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1, and we are going to be reading the first four verses of the book of James. And if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And the word of God says this, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Please be seated. Let us take a moment and let us pray together. Our gracious God and King, we come before you now and, and God, we stand in all of your goodness and your love. Lord, as we open up your word, we must be reminded that you are speaking to us through your scriptures. God, that you have said in your word that the word is living and active. And God, that, that through your word, the Holy Spirit may pierce our heart, transform our mind and make us brand new. And so, God, we beseech you this morning to let the word do its work. God, may there be no account of, of what voice it comes from. Let there be no thought into to how well or how poorly the, the scriptures may be presented. But God, we pray that your spirit may speak through the word and through me so that your word may be heard, that it may be heard clearly and Lord, that it may have its perfect result. And so, God, we lift up this time to you. And God, pray that you would both sow and that you would reap in our time together. God, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It was almost 20 years ago exactly that a young man who had recently rededicated his life to Christ was asked if he would take on the responsibility of discipling a small group of young men who were in high school. As he begun this task of discipleship, a thing that this church in particular called core groups, and as he did so under the supervision of the youth pastor at that time, he was confronted with a very painful truth. Despite his love for the Lord and his desire to follow God, despite being a young man who had grown up in the church his entire life, this young man did not know his Bible. Now, he knew stories from the Bible he could probably tell you about how David killed Goliath. He could probably tell you about Noah and the great flood and even how Jesus had turned water to wine. He could tell you a few of the teachings of the Bible. He might have known a little bit about the Beatitudes or the Ten Commandments. 
he was probably capable of drumming up a couple of Bible verses that he had learned as a small man and had been forced to memorize over repetition year after year after year. But as he stood before those high school boys and wanted to impart to them some truth of who God was, he recognized that he was grossly unsuited for the task. And as he looked at his Bible, as he looked at the Bible, he began to realize that there were huge portions of Scripture that he had never read even once in his life, nor had any idea what they would say within them. And even as he tried to teach these young men, he found himself quoting verses that he had never read before and probably really didn't know what they meant. This young man decided that if he was going to be teaching others the Bible, then he needed to know his Bible better. And so he began to set time aside after youth, as he had always asked off for that day, and so he knew that that was a day he was always free. And he would get out of the youth group meeting and go on to a place where he could be by himself in order to study the Bible to read the, the commentary notes that was in his life application Bible and to write some notes down for himself. This young man began with the book of James. And he did so because he didn't know who James was. He didn't know what the book was about. And he did not have one clear memory of his pastor or anyone else ever teaching from the book of James. That young man 20 years ago was me. And James Epistle has had a profound impact on my life. In fact, I can tell you with confidence that I probably would not be standing before you today as your pastor had God not used the book of James to sober me up as to what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and a teacher of his word. And so it seems fitting that almost 20 years ago to the day from when I first cracked open the book of James and began to learn what it meant to truly be a follower of Jesus, that we would come together to open the book of James and begin to learn those same lessons. I can tell you with great honesty that I am truly excited to embark on this journey together. I love this epistle dearly. And I hope that by the time that we are done with this epistle in a few weeks, that you will love it just as much. We begin by asking the question, who is James? James, in our epistle today, initially identifies himself in the passage as a bondservant or slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you have been here a while, this will certainly sound familiar because this is very similar to what we had read from Paul as he was writing his letter to Titus. In fact, if we go to Titus 1.1, it reads, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. While I would not say that James viewed himself as an apostle like Paul did, there is no question that James was, in fact, a leader within the church. And that he was, as a leader in the church, writing to the church and to Christians in order to instruct them and to encourage them. 
James' use of the word bondservant implies that he has the same level of dedication to the service of God through Christ as Paul did. And so, like Paul, the apostle, who we know very well, we have James, who had equally dedicated his life to making the good news about Jesus Christ known and to see people walk in love with Jesus. The fact that James simply identifies himself in this way, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, indicates to us that people knew who James was. In fact, throughout this entire letter, there is no story or need to qualify himself in any way, shape or form. He, unlike Paul in some of his letters, does not take any time to say, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what the Lord is doing. He just dives straight into instruction. This might reveal to us, and certainly as we look at all of Scripture, this does reveal to us that James was a man of prominence within the early church. In fact, Acts chapter 15, verse 13, we see how in the midst of this grand Jerusalem council, when everybody was done speaking, it was James who stepped up and said, this is what we are going to do. He was a leader among the church, even though not one of the twelve. In fact, tradition tells us that James was the leader within the church in Jerusalem and served there until he was martyred. But even these facts are not what make James such an interesting person in Scripture and such an interesting person for us to be studying and learning about today. See, to really get a full picture of why James is such an interesting person, we need to go back to the Gospels. And I want to take you to Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And after Jesus has gone to his hometown and he has been preaching and teaching within the synagogue, we read these words and uh, as the response to the people to Jesus' teaching. They said, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters even here with us? And they took offense to him. Going further into the epistles, Paul also had something to say about James. And in Galatians 1.19, we read this. It says, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And while James was a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while James certainly was the leader of the church in Jerusalem and a leader in the church as a whole, James most interestingly is the brother of Jesus Christ. A son of Mary, actually born of Joseph. What is fascinating is not only do we see it in Scripture as it is revealed in in even more passages than I have showed you that James was, in fact, Jesus' brother, but we can even go into um, history outside of Scriptures to find this. Josephus himself references the death of James and says that it was James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. And so we have, and what we are about to study today is a letter from a leader in the church who knew Jesus very well. 
And I tell you this not to make you think that James' letter in some way, shape, or form is more important than the rest of, of the letters, nor that it is in any way, shape, or form more inspired in the Scriptures, for all Scripture is God-breathed. But I want you to have confidence in who Jesus is. That Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, and that He did, in reality, rise from the grave. Picture for just a moment. Do you honestly think that Jesus' actual biological brother would die for something he knew not to be true? As I mentioned earlier, it was Josephus who told of, of how James was martyred. And what they said in the story was that in a point of transition in the, the area of Jerusalem, that there was a high priest that was eager to make a name for himself. And as, they, as there was a transition in the Roman rule and Flavius was out and a new person was coming in, the high priest took advantage of the situation and immediately called the Sanhedrin together and immediately accused James of, of creating problems and, and of promoting this Jesus who was his brother and had him stoned before the next Roman entourage came in. It was an act so scandalous that even the Jews said, this is not right. I don't think anyone in this room would die for a lie. I love my brother from a distance. I love my brother to death. This is no lie. I got to spend some time with him over this last week and it was wonderful. And I enjoy my, I love my brother. I'm not dying for his lie. Heck, I wouldn't even lie for him back in the day. I'd say, no, nah, you're, you're going to get in trouble and I can't wait to watch. He'll ask him. He'll tell you that's true. He said, I, I wouldn't say I was a tattletale, but I might have been a, 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 a wee tittle, a tittletale, maybe a little bit. But James believed. James believed that his brother was the Christ. James believed that his brother was the Son of God who not only died on the cross, but rose from the grave. And James didn't live long enough to enjoy some sort of benefit from that. In fact, all that we can tell that James ever benefited or profited from his service of Jesus was that he was stoned to death. What would make a brother be willing to go to execution for something that he knew was not true? The answer is nothing. See, James believed that he had actually seen the resurrected Jesus. That he had actually seen, actually saw with his own eyes that Jesus had risen from the grave. And James believed that to such a degree that he was willing to die for it. So as we dive into the book of James, may just who James is give you confidence in the Jesus that you serve. This leads us to the question of to whom was he writing? 
James addresses the letter in a really a, a very interesting way. And he, he, I think he's the only one that really does this. And he says to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. The 12 tribes is a reference in, in the Old Testament and historically speaking means the, the, the 12 tribes or the 12 sons of Israel and the nation of Israel that was divided up into 12 tribes. But that seems rather unusual for him to just be addressing the 12 tribes of Israel in his letter in light of the fact that he is going to be talking about the church. It is highly unlikely that, G, that James is actually only writing to the Jewish followers of, Jew, of Jesus or the remnant of the tribes of Israel. On the contrary, it is far more likely that the and, and what we see from Scripture is that the early church believed that the Gentiles were full recipients of the grace of God and of the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus. Acts eleven eighteen bears this out. When it says that when they heard this, which was the testimony of Peter, having seen Gentiles believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit, it says that when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. So it would make no sense for James to only be addressing the, the Jewish followers of Jesus and not the Gentile only because they viewed that both of them were full partakers in God's grace. Instead, the 12 tribes must be a reference to the church as a whole, both Jew and Gentile believers. James used the 12 tribes more likely as a reference to the fact that Israel was the covenant people of God and now the church was the new covenant people of God. And so to identify the whole church body as the 12 tribes is to show that all the nations have been brought under the promise of Abraham. First Peter chapter two makes this abundantly clear to us when Peter says, for you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so when he refers to the 12 tribes of Israel, he is saying that both Jew and Gentile, all are covenant people, all are brought into the promise. James goes on to say that not only do we have these 12 tribes, but also that these are 12 tribes scattered. In one sense. This is abundantly true as the church by this point has been persecuted and scattered. And so they are all over the area because of the persecutions that they had experienced under Saul, who has now become Paul. Um, they are all over the place. And so indeed, these 12 tribes, the church has been scattered. But there is also a reality here that and it is a reference to the fact that the Lord's day has not come. And that the people are scattered because God has not brought them all together on the Lord's day. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17 tells us about this saying, therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. 
James' reference to the 12 tribes still, still scattered is a reminder to them that even though Jesus has risen from the grave, that there is still a day coming where Jesus will come back and he will gather all his people to himself in a new heaven and a new earth within New Jerusalem, and they aren't there yet. James is reminding the church that they are partakers of the promise and that one day they will experience that promise in its fullness. And almost as we transition from this very simple greeting into the, the, the second verse of our passage today, we see almost implied a until that day. You are the people of God the people of the promise who will one day fully enjoy the presence of God and the fullness of God. But until that day, verse 2 says, consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. See, we are not at the promise yet. And because we are not at the promise yet, there are trials that are coming. I love what James says here because he does not say if you encounter various trials, but says rather when you encounter various trials. This is not a question of if the church dispersed is going to go through hardship, but when they are going to go through hardship. In fact, I would dare wager that they have already been going through hardship. They have already been going through trials of various sorts. And so to say if would have been so silly to the church dispersed. They would have all, if he said, hey, if you go through trials, every single church that read that letter out loud would have gone, if, like now. And so we'll see that as James begins to talk about these trials, in fact, he mentioned several of them within this letter alone. When we think about the trials that, that might, they might go through, we see in this book alone, he addresses persecution, division, favoritism, abuse of wealth, anger, abuse of words, laziness, and complacency within the church. And so just knowing what, what these things could be, if you read that list again, persecution, division, favoritism, abuse of wealth, anger, abuse of words, and laziness and complacency, I think that just about covers every church that has ever existed ever. And no church has gone through their existence, even in their earliest days, without dealing with these things. And he says, when you encounter these things, when you encounter trials and every other trial that may not be mentioned in our letter as we go into it, he says, consider it joy. Make it a joyful thing. Rejoice and be happy when these trials come. Now, I think the right question that we should ask in this moment is, why? 
why on earth would why why would this be the the first thing that he would say? I mean, and, and, and even to a degree, uh, almost offensive to those people that are listening that are going through the trials and going through the persecution and the division, the people that are trying to lead the church and watching as people who claim to follow Jesus don't actually follow him in any way, shape or form. When they see the abusive speech, when they see the favoritism, when they see people who have ginormous faith be mistreated and misused because they do not dress a certain way or smell a certain way or talk a certain way, when they're seeing all this to then say, hey, think of it as joy. What? This is terrible. We are struggling. How on earth do we consider this joy? Well, thankfully, he didn't say to the churches scattered abroad, greetings, consider it pure joy when you are struggling, when you are going through trials, sincerely, James. Because that might make you mad. But he goes on. He begins to answer that question for them. And he says this, he says, trials lead to endurance and endurance will eventually make us complete, whole and perfect. Now, that does seem like an oversimplification, but rest assured, we have a whole book to let an entire letter to let James begin to expand on this and show us more and more how trials lead to an endurance and how endurance will ultimately make us complete, full and perfect. Now, one of the interesting things about James is apparently James went around with Jesus quite a bit. So James knew the teachings of Jesus very well. And so what we will see as we go through the book of James is over and over and over again, when James is saying something, there is most undoubtedly a passage in the Gospels that is saying the, almost the very same thing. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 21. He says, but before all these things, talking about the end times, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet, not a hair on your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus is telling his followers in this time that, that, that trials are going to come. And that those trials that are going to come are further proof of the promise that he will come again. And that these trials will be first an opportunity for us to bear witness to our faith. Think about that for just a moment in the very words of Jesus that we read. He says all this has happened and it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. When we go through various trials and we go through trials, amen? When we go through trials, that is an opportunity for our testimony. That is an opportunity for us to be able to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to relate to people about what God has done in our lives and to be, be, 
and to proclaim in places that we otherwise might not be able to do so the good news. See, it is by our trials that puts us in that chair taking that chemotherapy. And those nurses come in and out and we can share Christ with them. It is our trials that put us into that hospital bed to share the good news of the gospel with doctors and nurses. It is our trials that put us in that waiting room to tell people the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our trials that lead our co-workers to ask us, how are you doing? I know you've been going through a lot. And to be able to turn to them and say, yes, I have been going through a lot, but I know for a fact that my God has me like he has my entire life. And I need not fear the future for I am in the palm of his hands. Do you know my Jesus? Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you go through trials. For trials may very well be the opportunity that God has given you to share your faith. But Jesus did not end it there. And Jesus went on to say it as he went through those trials and he talked about how, how family members will betray you and friends will abandon you and that some will even try to put you to death. And yet, not a hair on your head will perish and by your endurance, you will gain your life. God will use the trials of our life from the day we draw breath to the day we draw our last breath. He will use our trials to prepare us for the day that we go to be with him. And that every trial is not only an opportunity to testify about how good that God is, but every trial is, a, is an opportunity for us to grow in faith and obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ. You guys have probably often heard me talk about what Christian maturity is. And when I define Christian maturity, it is when we go through some stuff and get through it. And we recognize sometimes not till after that stuff is over that God was with us every step of the way. And that we got through that stuff because God was with us and he protected us and he gave us wisdom as we got through that stuff. And you know what happens? And some of you can testify that later in life, maybe shortly thereafter, we go through some more stuff. But when we go through that stuff, we remember the last stuff. And when we remember in the last stuff, God got us through it and God was with us and God took care of us. And so now that we're going through this stuff, we're not worried about it anymore. Not because we have what it takes to get through this stuff, but because we have faith that God got us through the last stuff. And so we have confidence that he got us through. He's going to get us through this stuff. That's maturity. And that's why we consider it joy. When we go through trials. Because we know. That these trials. Are the very thing that God is using to strengthen us, to teach us, to give us the wisdom that we might need for the trials that are coming. And they may not even be our trials. Sometimes God puts us through awful things, not so that we will be stronger later for ourselves, but so that we might be the strong one that another person can lean up against. What a blessing within the church. To have someone wrap their arms around you and say, I haven't been through the same thing, but I've been through similar. 
and I'm here for you. Even if they don't do a thing, even if they don't give an ounce of advice, even if they just put their arms around you and say, you are not alone. That is a glorious thing. And when you go through trials, God may be equipping you to be that blessing and to be that healing for someone else. And these are all reasons to be joyful. We are not necessarily joyful because of the trials. But we are joyful because trials are a reminder that God is doing something in our lives and through our lives for His glory. Our trials become a witness to people about the power and the love and the care of God. Our trials show people that our faith is real and that we serve a living God. Our trials teach us how to trust God more and they strengthen our faith in ways that we cannot do on our own. Our trials today become our confidence tomorrow. So that in the day the Lord returns, or that we go to be with Him, we will be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. So consider it all joy, brothers when you go through trials. For God is guiding you to a glorious end. As we close out our time this morning, I have no doubt that there are some here today that need to think about what that end might be. And while we may say to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, there is actually one thing that trials do that is probably the most important, and that is trials lead us to Jesus. And I don't know what trial brought you here today. It may have just been a trying significant other that wouldn't let you say no and drug you out of bed. But I believe that you are here for a reason. I believe that you are in this room for a reason. And I believe that whatever you may be going through might very well be God calling you to Himself. And so the first joy that we have in your trials is that you might hear the good news of the gospel and that you might believe. Now you've already heard me talk about today uh, about the fact that James, the brother of Jesus, saw him risen from the dead and believed that he saw him risen from the dead so much so that he became a follower of his own brother. And just like that invitation was extended to James, so it was extended to you. See, we here at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church, we believe that we are all sinners and that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Thank you. I will go straight to the sin up there. Um... And that sin is when we depart from God's design, when God, God has created us to live a certain way and to walk a certain way, to follow his character and his nature. And we say, nah, I've got a better idea. 
And so we begin to try to create our own way and create our own purpose and meaning. And what that ultimately does is lead us to a place of brokenness. And we feel that brokenness when we feel like we don't say what we're supposed to say. We don't do what we're supposed to do when we hurt people or just flat out. We feel like we're not where we're supposed to be in life. And that's because of sin. But this is why Jesus came. And we believe like James believed that Jesus was, in fact, the son of God born of the Virgin Mary, which was James mother. And that Jesus lived a perfect life and that he died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And the Bible says that, that, that God took him who knew no sin and made him sin on our behalf so that we might have the righteousness of God. That Jesus' perfection is applied to us and that our sin was applied to him at the cross. That Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death on the cross, and that he rose from the graves three days later. We believe this not because we have this crazy story, but because there are thousands of people who are willing to die for the testimony that they had seen Jesus alive. One of which, actually two of which, because Jude is James' brother, two of which were Jesus' own family. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And we explain it this way on our little picture here is that you need to repent and believe. First, you have to believe what James believed, that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the grave, that everything that that Jesus said about himself and that everything the Bible says about Jesus is true. You have to believe that. And in believing that, you need to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. And so we turn from sin and we turn from saying, I'm going to make my own way. And we say, I am going to follow Jesus. And when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray to make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. The Bible says that we are saved from our brokenness and begin to recover and pursue God's design for our life. I don't know what brought you here today. But I beg you this morning, where are you on this picture? If you are here today because you are going through trials and you feel that brokenness because you have never given your life to Jesus, I ask you the same thing that I guess Ryland asked of himself is what is preventing you? What is keeping you from making Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? If you are ready to do that this morning, I'm going to be standing right up here as we sing our last song. I would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. If you're looking at this and you're saying, well, I definitely think I'm in that brokenness category, and I, but I want to know a little bit more than I implore you. Don't wait until you get another opportunity. But talk to someone, talk to the person you came with, come and talk to me after the service and say, hey, I'm very interested in this. Can you tell me more? I will gladly do so. Whatever God is calling you to respond this morning, we invite you to respond. Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for, for this epistle and, and the power that is going to be behind it. Lord, we thank you for trials. Because, God, we can look in this passage and we can recognize that trials lead us to you. 
that trials lead us to you in saving faith, that trials can lead us to a deeper faith, that trials can lead us to an opportunity to share our faith, that you do wonderful things through trials. And so God, help us to consider it all joy that when trials come our way, that we can know that you are at work. Lord, help us through trials to gain endurance and through endurance that we might be, might be made perfect. And God, while we know we may never be perfect on this side of eternity, God, we know that you are not preparing us for this world, but that you are preparing us for eternity. So God, we lift up today and we say, have your way. Lord, do unto us as you see fit. And Lord, may our faith grow because of what you are doing in our lives. Father God, I know for some people here today, that means surrendering themselves to you for the very first time. And Lord, whether they do that right this very moment, or Lord, they do that over, over uh, Mexican food or coffee later today, God, I pray that you will open up our hearts to hear the good news, to believe the good news, and to be transformed by the good news. God, we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.